Welcome to episode 249. Did you know that a person today is exposed to more information in a single day than a person from the 1500s was in their entire life? Knowing that, it's no wonder we're stress eating, we're overwhelmed, we're anxious, we're suicidal, we're feeling broken, and we're unable to process our deep, painful trauma. There is simply no space to do the work amongst all of this chaos. And if it's that way for us, imagine how the modern day child is feeling as well. What we know from history is that practices of mindfulness and introspection via both meditation and psychedelic plant medicine ceremonies have been a well understood and deeply respected tool for healing trauma and promoting personal growth, gratitude and fulfillment for thousands of years across all cultures on the globe. That was up until it was suppressed and criminalized. This episode goes deep into conversations about where religion, meditation, psychedelics, and doing the deep inner work all began and why the scientific community today is now pushing for these powerful plant medicines to be brought back to the mainstream, just as they were thousands of years before. Honestly, this is a fantastic conversation. I think you'll really get a lot out of it. But please go in being open to new possibilities. Let's dive in. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously, so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? Oh, this episode has been a long time coming, and in my mind, uh, I'm really happy that we've finally gotten around to making it happen because... Uh, it's been, it's probably going to, you know, challenge some people's thinkings and who knows where we're going to end up and where we're going to go. But uh, there's some stuff that's definitely going to open your mind on this episode, which is perfect because in 2023, it's my mission to coach 500 people to stop the binge eating and savage self-talk cycle so they can lose weight whilst feeling in control and without restriction along the way. Being open-minded is essential to succeeding in that process. So speaking of opening that mind, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine, originally from here in Melbourne. We're kind of in the same broader social circle and see one another a bit at parties and events, and we've even co-worked together before. This man here is Dr. Richard Chambers, and he is a clinical psychologist and a global leader on mindful leadership and mindful education. And alongside that, he also has a professional interest in the application of psychedelics with or in the context of leadership development. Yes, that's right. A doctor of psychology and psychedelics in the same sentence, which obviously sounds very juicy. Formerly an associate professor in the Center of Contemplative and Consciousness Studies at Monash University, Richard is also a TEDx speaker, the author of three books, and has published over 40 research articles in leading journals around the world. Basically, the friends that I hang out with are Next Level Amazing, and Richard is one of those people. So welcome to the show, mate. How are you doing? Oh, it's a pleasure to know you, man, and thanks for having me on your show. It's really great to be here. Oh, it's so good for us to to finally get around to doing this. It's like, yeah, why have why have we done this sooner? I know we've been talking about this for a while, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, man, I love it. I love conversations with psychologists because if there's anything that I've learned throughout my entire journey of health, wellness, personal development, it's really just everything comes down to the mind. And I'm curious because as a young man myself, growing up, the idea of psychology was definitely like. You know, only people that have got been to war and have PTSD would see a shrink, you know, or anything like that. So, like, you know, and you know, I grew up in a country town in Australia. So, I'm wondering, like, what was your journey to becoming a psychologist or becoming interested in that world from a young age? 
Yeah, interesting question. I've also lived in small country towns as well as big cities around the world. And um, yeah, and there are still countries in the world, actually, still cultures where psychology is seen as something that only crazy people would do. Mm. Um, but thankfully, through the work of, you know, tireless work of people like you and uh, you know, so many people have, have started to sort of destigmatize mental health and launch initiatives and and slowly people are starting to understand that, in fact, everybody could benefit from some therapy. Um, mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to just be for serious mental illness. It can be for, you know, low-level sort of uh, everyday high-prevalent stuff like stress and anxiety or it could be for relationship problems. It could be for, you know, a whole raft of different things as well as self-improvement. You know, psychological tools are fantastic things for leadership development, personal development. Yeah, my journey with it was actually quite interesting. I, mean, I started uh, an arts degree at uh, at Melbourne Uni in 1999 and I I don't, I don't know what I was doing there, to be honest. Like I was just kind of there. You know, it was a degree that I did like a typical art student, I guess. <laughs> um, I, was, I was good at writing and humanities. I was like, yeah, might as well, you know, do some do some arts. And I was doing my undergrad psych, but I just basically wasn't going to class. I mean, looking back, I didn't have the best mental health at that time. I think, you know, difficult childhood experiences and just tough life up to that point had, had sort of taken its toll. And I was a bit, you know, I was a bit depressed perhaps. This very disengaged from uni, just partying a lot, to be honest. And I, I, to be honest, I, I didn't pay much attention actually in my undergrad psych degree. Um, I, I, I'm quite good at cram studying, so I'd literally borrow people's notes, a whole semester worth of notes, and just cram it in my head, do the exam, do the assessment, immediately forget it. Finish that, uh, finish third year. Third year actually something shifted. I, I discovered meditation. I um in fact going into third year, this this story will resonate with your audience. Going into third year, I just got jack of feeling like crap all the time mm-hmm. and just thought, you know what, I want to make some changes that, you know, I, I just want to feel better and, and have a better life. And I, I engaged in what we'd now call lifestyle medicine. Although back in nineteen ninety nine, you know, you had to really um That was yeah, well hippie. <laughs> it took a bit of work, you know, but I just thought, oh, Maybe I should get eight hours sleep instead of staying up all night every night. Maybe I should drink water. You know, maybe I should like clean up my diet. And, and so I just did all those things, started exercising, getting fit and healthy. And I felt physically better, but the mm-hmm. missing ingredient was meditation. And I discovered meditation in my final year of just by chance. I mean, again, it was early days. There were, we, we hadn't coined the term mindfulness. There were no apps. You wouldn't learn it in schools or universities. Mm-hmm. And I just found – I. I found myself with a Buddhist meditation class just by pure chance, by the way. A friend of mine named Will was heading along and asked me if I wanted to go. And I've had a series of events like that where just sliding doors moments, you know. So I'm in this meditation yeah. class and this guy starts talking about how we create all of our own suffering through – it was a, med, a, a Buddhist meditation center. You know, we all have minds that wander. We all get caught up in thinking that makes us unhappy and we can take control over that if we train our attention with meditation or just – being present throughout the day and it was just life-changing i mean as as this guy's speaking i'm like this is the psychology i want to learn man this stuff has relevance to me and then i started and then they taught mindfulness meditation i started doing that in the in the, the weekly classes and then doing it at home and getting that routine happening and i just started to feel mentally so much better and my grades improved you know i started to be able to focus I was also more disciplined, you know, I'd, I'd start going to uni from nine to five, Monday to Friday, and actually stay focused on my studies. Even if I didn't have classes that day, I'd just sit in the library and study. And 
but finishing third year, I still I was like, oh, psychology. I don't know. I don't want to do honors. Like, I don't really. Yeah, what am I going to do? So, art students when they finish their arts degree, they either uh, do honors or they go traveling. So I took the travel option. And Where'd you go? Yeah, well, Southeast Asia and East Asia. So I went Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, um, India, and Nepal, and just started doing going deeply into my practice, doing um, doing longer retreats, and just going for it with my meditation practice. And that really lit a fire in me. And then another meaningful coincidence, walking along a street in the north of India, up near um, Dharamsala, where the Dalai Lama lives, I was walking between these two towns, Bagsu and um, and McLeod Gange, and I was just on this windy, dusty road, you know, surrounded by, you know, Himalayan mountains and stuff with the odd rickshaw going past. And there was this chai shop. And I stopped, got a chai, and, and there would have been – there were some books for sale, and I reckon there would have been like 20 books on the shelf, like a tiny little shop. Yeah. And the first the first one I grabbed, called, a book called Healing Emotions, I opened it up, and it's a dialogue between Western neuroscientists and realized Buddhist lamas and, and serious meditators and like how do these things inform one another. And there, there, there were these dialogues. There's a conference that used to happen – biannually called the mind and life conference and it was you know it was it was scientists talking to inner scientists you know yeah. in the beginning buddhists and eventually you know sort of more more um, wisdom traditions came in and it branched out from neuroscience to psychologists and epidemiologists and you know it was just fascinating and this book just lit a fire i'm like i want to study that so i came wow. back to australia found a supervisor who'd let me do it again just early days just had to make it happen because I was just so passionate about it and that just kicked off a whole career in mindfulness it's led me to now um, you know spending decades teaching it to students and yeah. uh, working in businesses I'm now really really into the in, the applications of mindfulness for leadership as people become more focused more self-aware more connected to their deeper values more able to just step back and just inhabit healthier parts of themselves rather than getting caught in, you know, less functional parts of themselves. It's profound. So I'm really inspired by that. Man, that's amazing. What a journey and what a, yeah, sort of um, serendipitous, serendipitous, you know, few moments in that journey that kind of led you here. I'm curious to ask, like, what drove you more towards, was it that book that drove you more towards the science and the Western application rather than staying in Asia and going full Buddhist monk kind of, you know, because <laughs> yeah. like, I can imagine on that journey you were on a bit of a seesaw between, and I, I know I've been on that seesaw maybe going in the other direction myself, which is starting in the Western system, growing up with mum as a nurse, and then sort of being like, oh, actually maybe some of the hippies had it more right than I originally judged them for, you know. Um, so I'm curious, what was the push towards the, oh, I've got to go back to Australia and go to university to learn about this rather than stay where you were? Beautiful, yeah. I mean, two of my deepest, most intrinsic core values are compassion and contribution. Mm-hmm. I'm just called to contribute <laughs> to society. And, and I, obviously I had those those moments where I was considering you know, putting on robes in Thailand or or something like that. And there's just, there's something that just pulls me back and just says, no, 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 bring this to the people that need it in the West, bring this to, bring this to Australian society, to Western society, you know, and, and I noticed, and this book was a really good example of this, that there is this dialogue going on. There are these, you know, thousand year old wisdom traditions which are inner sciences. I mean, people seriously have sat for 
decades observing the most granular stuff about the way their minds work and documenting it and having successive generations read these manuals and do the practices and tweak them. And like they've mapped out the entire, like anything you ever want to know about how the mind works, it's all been discovered. However, it's only accessible, it's only verifiable with the tool of introspection meditative practice. So most people <laughs> are like, they're not going to invest in that. But beautifully, um, neuroscience and psychology and research, particularly neuroscience actually, is kind of catching up because all these all these things that have been discovered are being explored now in brain scanners and in research studies. And, and, and so there's this fantastic dialogue. And so I just felt called to be part of that. I think that's why that book resonated with me so much because I'd done three years of psychology. You know, I was considering going back and doing my honours, but I'm like, I don't just want to go back and do it to do it, do some some research, some thesis I'm not interested in. Like, why? What, what's my why? Why am I doing this? And then I was like, oh, this feels really important. My meditation practice has fundamentally changed my life. Everyone should learn this. Everyone should understand why it's important to be learning this. We should be teaching it in schools. We should be weaving it through businesses. The, the leaders and the powerful people definitely should have a uh, you know a, a practice and um yeah i just got really lit up to bring that back and and somehow that's just happened since i've just been part of that journey as you're describing that it made me think of like astrophysicists and it's like they tell us that all of this stuff is out there and we just have to believe them and it's the same idea it's like look at all this mindfulness research and it's like the only way you can experience it is go there yourself so <laughs> In in the end, that's true, isn't it? In the end, that's all we can do. But what motivates people is seeing the brain scans yes. and re- reading the research literature. When I did my honours in 2003, I read every single mindfulness study cover to cover because there were like 43 of them. Yeah, wow. And, and then I published <laughs> mine as like number 44, right? Yeah. Fast forward to now, there were like 2,000 papers published last year and there's this hockey stick thing going on like, it's next level. And so, you know, that's, uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing the enthusiasm for it. I'm curious in all of the, your experience and reading and research, what, what do you think happened with the Western world? Because obviously these were traditions in many parts of the world for thousands of years. Like did the Western world just this practice evaporated with the progression of Christianity and, and, and that type of thing over history, or is it that it was actively suppressed? Or, you know, I'm, I'm curious where the Western yeah. world forgot this tradition or lost it or actively removed it because, yeah, there's, whether, whether you're in Africa or whether you're in South America or Asia, there's thousands of years of history of this stuff, but the Western yeah. world, it seems to have disappeared somewhere. Such an interesting question. You're really making me stop and think for a moment. I mean, my hypothesis would be that, you know, the separation of church and state that came about through the Enlightenment and the Enlightenment values of, you know, just <laughs> people having rights and, you know, having a <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> rule of process and all those amazing Enlightenment values that, that we now have just we take for granted, in fact, in our society, but I think sometimes way too much. Um that separation of church and state was really useful because of the way the church was controlling people's lives and the, the, you know, the empires of the day were just making people's lives miserable. And so there was this kind of arising of the scientific method 
So there was a shift from the internal, because I guess if you're praying, if, you, if, you, if you're genuinely practicing any wisdom tradition, you're looking within. If you're a yep. genuine practitioner, you know, it's controversial perhaps to say this, but, you know, there are ways of practicing in a pretty superficial way, which unfortunately a lot of people seem to be doing. And then there's the genuine sort of experiential, and, you know, all wisdom traditions have that. You know, these days it's Gnostic Christianity and it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's Kabbalah and it's like Sufism and it's Buddhism and, and, and aspects of Hinduism. So we went from looking within to looking without, which is what science is all about, which is like if it's not verifiable, then I'm probably yeah. not going to believe that it's true. And that was an amazing thing, you know, because mm-hmm. we went from superstition and control and people not having a lot of freedom or access to information to being able to verify things and question things systematically. And so we started to look without, but I guess we've gotten lost in that. And I'd, I'd say like the scient- yeah. the scientism of today, science becoming a religion, you know, anything that can't be verified isn't real. And of course, you know, there are all sorts of things that can't actually be scientifically verified. Yeah. I mean, love, you know, <laughs> the taste of an apple. I mean, you know, it's just, you know, yeah. it's, it's, all these examples abound. And so we've gotten really caught in, in, in science, you know, at, at its extreme, there's that scientism. And so what I see happening here in this movement is a coming back together because pe- people were holding that internal wisdom and we have developed to a high level, you know, ran double-blinded, ra- triple-blinded, bl- randomized control trials and me- meta-analyses and meta-analyses and, you know, functional <laughs> neuroimaging. And it's coming together with something and it's like, oh, okay. And so if you can see it, you're more likely to do it. Looping back around to what we were talking about earlier, like when people start to be able to see, oh, here's a study where you get people, put them in a brain scanner, eight weeks of meditation training. This is one of the classic, you know, Britta Holzel's 2011, like sort of canonical neuroscience papers. Eight weeks later, back in the brain scanner, compare the meditators to a control group. Oh my God gray matter in the prefrontal cortex, hippocampus, which is a long-term memory area, and insula, which is the interoception area, uh-huh. um, you know, all like literally grown like a muscle. And you can show people, you know, here's, here's the muscle growth you get from 20 minutes of meditation a day for eight weeks. And people are like, oh, okay, tell me more. And then, of course, yeah. you know, there's all these research papers around that and how it's like most of it's still focused on mental health. I've been trying to push the needle a bit in the direction of education over the last 20 years, realizing that, my God, if there had been like a Smiling Mind app or anything at all in my schooling, I would have probably had a completely, like I would have have heard that message, I reckon, and had a different life, an easier life. Um, And also now, of course, pushing it into the leadership development space because you know, if we can strengthen parts of our brain and strengthen parts of ourselves with neuroplasticity and allow other less functional parts of ourselves to sort of start to atrophy, you know, I could say. Or, uh, <laughs> the unhelpful parts, hopefully. Yeah, that's, that's, that's true. Yeah. Or if we, can, if we can look within and get to know ourselves really deeply, if we can get in touch with core values, if we can be more embodied so that we're more genuinely connected with ourselves and with others and with mm. the earth, that's the foundation of well-being. And it's also the foundation yeah. of effective leadership because it's pretty hard to make, you know, terrible antisocial decisions, polluting people's water systems or exploiting exploiting people when you're really deeply connected with your heart and your gut and in your yeah. body. So, you know, it's a it's a powerful tool. It totally is. You, I'm going to butcher the quote, but there's a quote that came to mind when you were talking there about the coming together because I think 
you know, we went from a place maybe in history where faith was required for, and not just religious faith, but just belief in a process or belief in an idea in order for it to occur. A lot of people just said, sure, because they didn't have that physical evidence to look at and measure and say, okay, this makes sense. And so now we've gone maybe too far the other other way, which as you just described, it's like, if it's not, it's not tangible in physical reality, then it's not true until a scientist or a doctor tells me it's so. Um, and then the, the coming to work, coming together of those worlds. And there's a quote that's like, um, religion and science can coexist. Science just is just too young to understand. Um, <laughs> and, and so maybe there is a place yep. where, yeah, both of those things do coexist. And maybe the mind melting moment is that when we realize they're the same thing. Oh my God, I'm sorry. that yep that might be a pretty good moment for humanity right (laughs) yeah and luckily things like you know luckily there are scientists out there who have deep meditation practices or or are deeply interested in the world's wisdom traditions and of course as we know there are scientists out there of all flavors interested in psychedelics which again Mm -hmm. helps connect those worlds because you can't avoid it when you're deep in a psychedelic ceremony or process and you, and you can't avoid it when you're you've got a genuine meditation practice it's not your five minutes a day from your app to manage your stress levels but it's something a bit more profound than that it does it brings them back together and we're seeing i mean culturally you know globally we're seeing a shift away from scientism i mean you mentioned before astrophysics I literally know people that are convinced the earth is flat right i mean we all Same. Know, we, yeah we all know this people. and it's interesting talking to them because obviously there's so many things that we know intuitively just negate that, nip that right in the bud. But when they ask you to demonstrate it, hmm, okay, there's actually not much we can demonstrate, right? Yeah. I mean, you can with mathematical models and you can call someone on the other side of the world, oh, it's dark there, it's light here. What does that say about the nature of reality? However... It's interesting. And so I think that's a shift away from giving away all of our power to, you know, people in white coats, to the scientists, to the, to the, yeah. you know, whoever, like people, and, and, and it's coming back to like, well, hang on, what, what do I think? And what's true in my direct experience, which is kind of a, a, a funny, whimsical, tragic sign of that, of that, that, that swing back from scientism to something that's a, perhaps a marriage of science and, in a knowing yeah it's funny you mentioned the um flat earth thing because it's conversations with a couple of people that i know and respect that truly believe the earth is flat um that i have come i really came around to the idea well if i can't show you myself then i will actually surrender to the possibility that you're right um and so it's it's not me saying i believe that i'm just saying i've never been to space and flown a shuttle around the world and therefore i do not actually know i've been told by lots and lots of different people that this is so but it's just chinese whispers if i'm really you know honest about it it's like i I don't tangibly know and p.s neither do you (laughs) (laughs) you mentioned psychedelics in there though like Maybe maybe flat earth theories or round earth theories uh, came from psychedelic experiences. <laughs> <laughs> Something came from psychedelics. In fact, a lot of things, if you, if you start peeling back the, the layers and looking deeply, you know, a lot of things have come from psychedelics. I mean, for instance, you know, there are two amazing books that I'd pitch to your audience. One is Brian Murarescu's The Immortality Key, which talks about how psychedelics is at the foundation of Western thought and Western religion. 
how there was a 2,000-year Burning Man festival happening in the ancient world that for 2,000 consecutive years people would make a pilgrimage, which they go to once in their life and consume some kind of very potent psychedelic brew and have the insights that have led to things like democracy and led Mm -hmm. to things like trigonometry. I mean, your whole year seven algebra class went to this festival, Pythagoras and et cetera. I think Socrates or Plato, I think it was Socrates went, Marcus Aurelius went. I mean, this was like all the big thinkers of that that era were going to this festival and taking psychedelics. And it was Socrates, I think, who said that if this ever, if if this festival ever stops for Mm -hmm. any reason, we're in deep trouble. Yeah, as, as as humanity, and it was of course shut down by the church because it was you know plant medicines administered yeah. by women and looking within and taking back our power rather than giving it away. So, so that was that was shut down. Another really good book actually is um it's uh, what's his name Mike Crowley, the Secret Drugs of Buddhism. That blew my mind because I've spent twenty years practicing uh, practicing Buddhism in different flavors, including I think 10, 12 years in Tibetan Buddhism, and You've all seen uh, statues and and those paintings of the Buddha, different Buddha forms, which are different aspects of consciousness reflected visually, and they're always holding a bowl and flowers and malas and all swords and all sorts of stuff. But they're ninety percent of them are holding a bowl, and in yeah. that bowl is a psychedelic brew. Because in Hinduism, if you go back to to the days of Hinduism, the earliest books, the Rig Veda, the earliest five thousand year old Hindu texts all talk about soma, which is this plant medicine that was at the core of a lot of their particularly tantric rituals. Fast forward a few thousand years and Buddhism basically, re- again, controversial comment here, but it's true, they rebranded a lot of Hinduism. Um, you know, new insights had come from a t- particular historical yeah. figure, but they rebranded it and uh, soma became Amrita. And Amrita is a central part of, I've, I've done empowerments and initiations in the Tibetan Buddhist traditions where you're given Amrita, but it's water with like petals floating in it. And it's like, a, it's, it's a placebo basically. And yeah. this guy, Mike Crowley, makes a very strong case based on scriptural evidence, graphical evidence, like just open and shut. I mean, he gets in a, a tunnel where everything in Buddhism is mushrooms, but he, it's quite, you know, it's interesting how people get sort of caught up in this, but he paints a really compelling case that at the foundation of tantric Buddhism is a psychedelic sacrament. And so it's, it's really interesting when you start experiencing these ideas and realizing this is at the foundation of society. I mean, the stoned ape hypothesis. Uh, I was going to bring that up. Ancestors, good, yeah. yeah. It's an interesting hypothesis, isn't it? The Terence McKenna stoned ape theory, yeah. Yeah, like right there, you know, like we are ancient hominid ancestors. Maybe, it's a theory, may yeah. have been. Well, they were following herds and hunting them. Those herds were shooting on the ground out of that, uh, out of those cow pads basically uh psychedelic mushrooms are growing we know all of this is true it's possible some might say likely that they might have eaten a mushroom as they're hunting they're they're literally tracking the following the poop and the footsteps and there's mushrooms someone must have eaten one i don't know how we figured out which mushrooms are poisonous which ones aren't i guess that was just a scientific darwinistic process (laughs) (laughs) the beginning of science (laughs) the beginning of science i dare you to eat it eat it eat it i dare you and then someone eat it and then maybe like and brain you know because it was around that time that our brain grew massively and no one knows why that happened yeah there's this massive 
there's a massive unexplainable chapter of history where the brain yeah grew in such large amounts hockey stick hockey stick we were starting to cook food which means better absorption of fat which means better growth of white matter in the brain maybe uh, you know, did did aliens come down and combine their DNA with ours? I don't know, but this is a pretty this is a pretty compelling uh, hypothesis. And so maybe at the foundation of human consciousness, religion, philosophy, politics, just thought is is psychedelics because that's where all of the world's religions came from. They they originally came out of or replaced animistic, like nature based, psychedelic based, uh, you know, uh, traditions. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. Yeah. Well, even if you go, depending which rabbit hole you go down, like the story of Santa Claus, you know, is uh, is connected to mushrooms as well, right? Like, which is just... 100%. It's just mind-blowing. And it's it's funny too that this this repeats in a lot of the work or the research that I do in multiple areas. So going back to your uni story and your undergrad, you were like, ah, oh, you know, not too focused or not too interested. I was similar. Um, and so I, what I, what I wanted to do is I wanted to be able to pass without having to study. And so I went to um, this guy's who did a TED talk um, Joshua Fowler is his name. Oh, yeah, I know him. Yeah, he's a memory specialist. Well, not personally, but yes. Yeah. yeah. So I learned all of his techniques, took a few of his classes and, and education stuff that he was selling. Um, and basically, I wanted to be, be able to continue partying, you know, into years three and four without having to do any less. And I learned all of these amazing memory techniques. And part of the learning, though, was that these techniques in like the 1500s, were wiped out of education systems because the the church was, and this is the way the story goes, the church was threatened by the degree of creativity that they're using these techniques promoted wow. in, in, in free-thinking children. Um, and so it's funny that, again, the church is, comes up as a, oh, no, we'll uh, restrict you from thinking that way because, you know, you never know where free-thinking men and women end up right outside of the control or the reach of the the big the big hand <laughs> so interesting your story there and it's just again it's a it's a really interesting um e- example of you know the the, the downside to organized religion the baby mm-hmm. however of course went out with the bathwater because we now are existing and uh youth of today are growing up in a moral vacuum 
no yeah. idea about any meaningful values whatsoever, caught up in the most shallow Instagram-based, TikTok-influenced, capitalistic, superficial, I want to be an influencer, like just a vacuum of anything meaningful. And we wonder why our mental health like uh, rates are just plummeting and we wonder why the earth's getting you know, more and more messed up. You know, and so we threw something out because our grandparents, they, they, their social circles were probably the Christian church and hanging out at the church yeah. and Sunday school and woven in there as well as all of the stuff that we're pretty happy to have gotten rid of was some pretty, you know, some pretty deep, at least ideas, if not practices, at least some deep ideas about what it means to be a good human being. So again, things like mindfulness, things like positive psychology, things like psychedelics, they bring us back to they give us they they bring us back to that to to those kinds of questions and those kinds of you know insights and and, and that's a a really powerful thing yeah i I totally agree with what you're saying um on that note with psychedelics, like it is because of the history that we've talk, sort of briefly touched on, you know it is such a taboo topic, and people listening are probably like, you know is this guy really a clinical psychologist, my psychologist or doctor wouldn't talk about this like not yet you know it's starting to come into the conversation and it's been legalized in a bunch of states in the u s and there's been a change in the standard uh or where it sits in the hierarchy of drugs in Australia, so the t g a have shifted it, and soon it will be able to be prescribed by psychiatrists in australia so so there is a big shift happening so like Sort of for the you know the the person who's new to this or considers psychedelics as just something that happened in the seventies and should definitely stay there, like you know why is this coming back and and why are we allowing it given it's an illegal drug? <laughs> yeah, so you're describing particularly in the Australian context the rescheduling of psilocybin and MDMA from Schedule Nine, which mm-hmm. was highly restricted, available only through strictly controlled clinical trials. Uh, for very specific diagnoses to Schedule 8, which means still very specific diagnoses need to be indicated for their use, but now rather than needing to get into a clinical trial, certain uh, certain uh, psychiatrists with that with a particular type of training can now start to administer these uh, what's called the medicines, I guess, um, in in sort of you know in a much more accessible way. So it's another step to making them more accessible for people. Still in the realm of health, mental health, which is, of course, driving this whole train and super important given the the meaning crisis and the mental health concerns I was talking about a moment ago. Um, so that's that's a big shift. It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out on the ground because at the moment, technically, you're going to have to have a psychiatrist sitting with you for I mean, you know, two hours maybe in the context of, I mean, well, ketamine's not, not, not even on that list yet, but, you know, that's the shortest acting one of DMT and ketamine are. And then, you know, things like psilocybin, that's a, that's a big commitment. You take, a, you take yeah. a big dose of psilocybin, that's, a, that's at least like six, seven hours before you can be put in a taxi and go home. Right? Absolutely. And, and M- MDMA is pretty similar kind of half-life, I think. So that's a big it's going to be a big burden on the healthcare system. So it'll be interesting to see how it actually plays out on the ground. Um, but it's a, it's a big deal. And it's, it's interesting that you mention actually people's reactions to psychedelics. I live in a pretty rarefied world because most of the people that I choose to hang out with are meditators, you know, people who have a spiritual practice and or a, um, you know, are interested in psychedelics for whatever reason and in whatever capacity. 
So most people in my in my orbit seem pretty open to the idea, except you know maybe older generations. My parents, um, one of my mentors actually, one of my one of my mentors is a, a medical educator and the most open minded person. Like it's just he's been teaching lifestyle medicine. You should have him on your show. Actually, I'll introduce his name, Craig Hazard. Amazing. Um, he, yeah, he's he's my like we were the we were doing the mindfulness thing at Monash for the last um, twelve years. I've I've now stepped away. I mean, I'm, I'm still I'm in an adjunct associate professor role, but I'm not yeah. sort of operationally involved. So he's been weaving mindfulness through the uh, mindfulness and lifestyle medicine through the medical curriculum at Monash for forty years. He's been teaching wow. mi- mindfulness at Monash for it's in the core curriculum now. In about 22 different units, I've helped him drive that. But he planted, he planted those seeds. This guy's so open-minded, philosopher, Shakespeare fan, deep meditator. And um, when I, one of the first things I did when I got interested in psychedelics was to write a, a journal article on these on the uh, theoretical synergies between mindfulness and psychedelics. How mindfulness might be good for people taking psychedelics, and how psychedelics might help deepen and shift a mindfulness practice. And he was my avatar client. He was the person I was trying to convince. Because when I first mentioned my interest in psychedelics, this open-minded dude has literally been fighting the good fight to get a few hours of medical students' time to teach them about the importance of sleep and social connection and diet and exercise. I mean, stuff that to me and you is just so patently obvious constant pushback why are we teaching this crap in our course no one else is doing this we should carve back these hours and teach them a bit more pharmacology or up their clinical skills or something yeah unbelievable right and so i wrote and so i wrote this paper deliberately speaking to him because he thought when i first mentioned my interest in psychedelics he was like he's been so red-pilled with the war on drugs this like ideologically driven war on plant medicines and war on certain states of consciousness to be honest yeah he's been been so red pill when i mentioned it he's like doesn't that cause psychosis and i was just like face palms like that's how deep this that's how deep this has gone in our society and my parents the same and your parents probably the same and a lot of older generations and probably even a lot of people now i have this have this fear because it was just i mean look potted history of psychedelics you know discovery of i mean thousands of years of use and stuff but the thing that drove it the most was the lsd research happening you know, this yeah. accidental discovery of lsd and then these clinical trials and these you know just under thousands of trials and sometimes like single session cures for lifelong mental health problems and addictions and just profound stuff and then psychedelics getting out into the public consciousness and changing the fabric i mean talk about you know, changing consciousness, you know, like the, the hippie generation completely questioning their parents' views of the world and mindsets and their, their parents' parents and everything had been kind of iterating on the same theme and then all of a sudden boop, there's this whole other thing that's happened which we still are integrating into our society and then that just got a bit threatening. Tune in, turn on, drop out, you know, at a time of, of social unrest and anti-Vietnam war protesting and idiot avatars like timothy leary getting out there and kind of you know yeah. like tune into and drop out and just threatening the establishment who basically said all right well <laughs> enough of that so <laughs> they so they shut it down and uh, you know and and it's been basically it didn't go away it just went mm-hmm. underground i mean people of have course. been people have been delivering this stuff 
for all sorts of purposes, whether it's, you know, well-being, mental health, um, healing, you know, <laughs> like personal development. It's just been happening underground. And there's been, you know, medical professionals involved in this from, from you know, some of the conversations I've been having. And then there's been a thawing, you know. There's been amazing work done, you know, by organisations like MAPS, Rick Doblin, like 30-plus years of just clinical trials and lobbying to get MDMA rescheduled from absolutely completely illegal and unacceptable for use in any circumstances, anywhere, for any, at any time to, like, maybe in a clinical trial you know but we're yeah. going to like you know we, yeah, like police it and, and so you know people like that have done amazing work and it's really exploded back into our consciousness at a time that you know i guess it kind of fits because again you know while we've swung a bit away from scientism perhaps into flat earthness and the woke movement and all this stuff which is like a reclaiming of emotion and a reclaiming of embodiment and again really useful going way too far but that's how pendulums tend to go you know there's this at the same time as that perhaps coincidentally perhaps not there's this psychedelic renaissance going on where you know these tools are making their way into society that used well Mm -hmm. and I know we're becoming sort of getting towards maybe the end of our, t- our time today. Maybe we can have another chat about this later. But you know, used well. I just want to <laughs> yep. make this point because these things can be used real badly, really, really of badly. Yeah. Used well, which for me is with a clear intention and an existing mindfulness meditation practice to hold whatever comes up with awareness and compassion. Um, ideally like in a good set and setting. So you want to be in a good mindset and also in a good setting. So ideally you want to be like in a ceremonial space where there's an intention for healing um, or around really good friends, like maybe a sitter or if you want to use them recreationally, like I'm not opposed to that. I might do that every now and then, you know, like, but, you know, like just doing it smart. You don't want to have your first mushroom you know, journey, taking some shrooms at a party with people you don't know. You don't want to drop yeah. two tabs of acid at, uh, at at a music festival and just have a terrible, you know, this, it's really not smart. So when done well, these things are a powerful tool, again, for just perhaps reconnecting us back from this overly heady, intellectualizing, disconnected way of living, which is what science and technology has done for us, reconnecting us back to something that we forgot but never really forgot. It's just been kind of existing in our, you know, Jungian collective unconsciousness or whatever's got, whatever's been going on, you know, or underground psychedelic movements and underground hippie meditator movements and or, or Eastern cultures doing their meditative piece and it's all of a sudden it's like, oh, how, how are these things reconnecting? And so that's what we're seeing and that's what the rescheduling from Schedule 9 to Schedule 8 is. It's like a to coming back together and saying, oh, maybe there is a place strictly controlled, got to be scientific, can only be psychiatrists that are administering this, got to be have the evidence, 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 random, whether randomized controlled trials, blah, 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 blah. You know, which is actually, you know, serves a purpose too. So we don't get Timothy course, Leary's yeah. and people jumping off buildings. And, you know, not that that happens at so low prevalence, but you wait till the first person jumps off a building, has a psychotic episode something bad happens, the media is going to make that sound like that's the inevitable consequences of taking psychedelics. <laughs> <laughs> Although we've learned a lot from the mindfulness movement because early on when I was getting into mindfulness research, it was all starry eyes and like, oh, my God, this is the panacea to cure everything on the earth and it's good for everyone and everybody should do it in every context. And 
you know, that's just obviously not true. If you're, if, yeah. you're, if you've got psychosis or you're at risk of psychosis, you know, it'd be a really good example. Maybe, maybe don't, you know, so don't do that, you know, or do it in a yeah, more yeah. control kind of way. And we've learned from that now because there was a backlash, the mindfulness movement and the dark night of the soul, Britta Holes, uh, no, um, you know, all that work around like, what was her name? Brit, uh, blanking anyway, there's a, there's a really great researcher who's kind of made it her mission to, talk about the dark side of meditation kind of made it her like it's it's probably gone a bit intense that message but you know and putting people off because it's pretty low prevalence but we want to we want to learn from those mistakes and make sure that this psychedelic renaissance gets done in a you know a, a well thought out and controlled but not too controlled way i mean you know, yeah yeah so yeah i think i think any discouragement of exploration just period because it might go bad is is in itself a bad idea because yeah the idea that exploration on any level is not going to be fraught with challenge and difficulty and you know that's part of the course right it's sure there's a dark night of the soul you need one obviously right that's part of therapy it's the idea that you need the suffering and the struggle to show you what really matters to be able to figure out what's wrong to be able to figure out what you want to be right you know and i think that yeah in order to if it's just stay away from the hot stove because it's hot it's like well yeah but the hot stove still cooks stuff and that's pretty useful <laughs> every generation of kids there's going to be some that want to touch the hot stove to see if it's really hot or what that hotness feels like and so we might as well bring this out into the open yeah. and say hey this is happening you know when i talk to my i don't do clinical work anymore but anytime i talk to anybody who's interested in this you know particularly when i was a psychologist and my clients were sort of interested it's like well you can use any any drug can be used to wake up or to go to sleep. Some drugs, I think, arguably, there'd be people that would disagree, like Carl Hart, who wrote, you know, drug use for adults. He would say that heroin is just as good as psilocybin. Personally, my intuitive gut sense is that uh, I think some drugs are more likely to put us to sleep or take us into places we don't want to go. Ice and heroin, perhaps, being you know, shining examples of that. And then other substances like the psychedelics mm-hmm. um, are things that can wake us up. You know, if you, if they're used skillfully, and of course you can get totally, you know, lost in them. And you know, cannabis is a good example. You can sit on the couch smoking bongs and playing PlayStation, which I did when I was young, and that was just, you know, sativa, you know, sativa weed in Melbourne, Australia. It's like, you know, it's just numbing, mind numbing, yeah. stunting actually, emotionally stunting. Whereas, you know, if you if you perhaps have some indica or some hash, or you use it just to like, you know, have to smoke a bit of a joint and go and play some music or do some dancing or get out in nature. Okay, waking you up. So it's really about how we use it. And that's the narrative I'd love us to be having with the young people of today. In fact, with everybody, like alcohol, the same, you know, my partner's Italian, you know, Elisa, she actually is the one Italian on the planet that doesn't drink. But when I hang out with her, her drinking <laughs> friends, no one's getting drunk. They might get tipsy, but mostly they're just enjoying a glass of wine, which they've been doing since they were kids at the dinner table. And you contrast that again with the Australian binge drinking experience, totally different. It can wake you up. It can put you to sleep. And again, you know, it's it's the intention we have behind the things that we do, the intention that we have behind, you know, using drugs as an example, and the containers we use that in and the mindsets and the intention. Like I don't, you know, I don't generally take – you know drugs to to numb myself right i'm trying to come out of those habits as much as i can but i'm interested in you know using certain substances to to wake up and 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 uh you know enhance my meditation practice or 
deepen my connection with myself or with the earth or with other people. And that's, 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 that's what I'm hoping we'll see more and more and more of in the, in the psychedelic space. It's going back to before you mentioned um, when you were talking about, you know, people often think of the, you know, or the, the, sorry, your mentor thinks about the psychosis. Doesn't that cause psychosis? I thought that was really apt, which you then led into like the wake up or go to sleep stuff. Because I spoke to someone today and I was like, oh, I'm going to be hanging out with Richard. This is, this is who Richard is. What should I ask Richard? Um, and her, and I love her dearly. She's a fabulous human. But her reaction was the same. She's a nurse and she basically said, you know, we know all about the psychosis that marijuana can cause. So, you know, if I can, if I can just manage my health and wellness with, you know, the food and breath work and all of those kinds of things, I might just do that. That feels safer. And I, I just hurtled back a curveball where I was like, hang on, hang on. We change our state and manipulate ourselves into maybe some level of psychosis with sugar on a daily basis, with <laughs> alcohol on a weekly basis. Uh, and sugar, you know, causes, de- like it's debilitated half the world, sugar, arguably, right? And shortened their lives. And so it's funny where we've grown up in these worlds with such authoritarian, uh, you know, governments around this topic um, that we grow up with this idea, well, oh, if a bad thing can happen, it's, it's, it's bad, it should be illegal. And it's like, well, in that case, shouldn't sugar be illegal? Shouldn't alcohol be illegal? Shouldn't tobacco be illegal? <laughs> you know, it's this, we can't have that black and white thinking. That's correct. It's, it's shark attacks and car accidents, you know, like you've got this high prevalence yeah. thing that no one thinks about. And then you've got this horrible thing that makes the news and everybody's deeply terrified of because it's literally something from the deep coming to get you, which represents in some Jungian way, of course, our deepest psychology. It's, the same, it's exactly the same with psychedelics. You know, you see people like, you know, you see the arguments for criminalizing psychedelics. Oh, you know, it causes, you know, schizophrenia in a small group of people or people will jump off rooftops. And of course that happens. But how many people are dying today in Melbourne, Australia from the effect, the effects directly or indirect of sugar, alcohol, tobacco? I mean, it's just, if you, if you bring a statistician's lens to that, an epidemiological lens, it just doesn't stand up for one second, that argument. But Or prescription drugs. Like- yeah. Ibuprofen in the US kills 16,000 people a year because of gastrointestinal bleeding. Like, Next level. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I mean, not that we're deep into the psychedelic research, but something tells me it's going to be a much lower number. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. If, That's uh, one again, drug. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Again, if done well. And the other thing is, you know, like you, you've got to feel for the nurses and doctors of the world. You've got to feel for the psychologists of the world because the majority of them probably. I'm guessing, I can't say the majority of them aren't open to experimenting themselves, but think about the self-selection bias of, of the data that they're getting. Of course. Yeah. People, don't, people don't walk into the ER at St. Vincent's and say, hey, guys, I've just come in to say that I am high as balls on LSD <laughs> and it is amazing. And I just want to thank you for the beautiful work that you do here, saving lives. I'm just so grateful to you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for dedicating your whole – that's not happening. <laughs> Is it? If that happened a little Not bit more, all. maybe it would counterbalance views like your friends, where they'd be like, yeah. "Oh, you know, like my old, like you know, one of my old uh, psychology supervisors, same thing, just <sighs> towards psychedelics." Because the people that came to see her usually yeah. needed to be put back together again, and that's the context <laughs> in which they were talking about psychedelics. And what percentage of psychedelics users is that? We actually don't really know. I've yeah. been doing some research with uh, with colleagues from my old um, psychedelic startup. Um, 
and we're finding you know really low prevalence however if you have a family history of psychosis or a personal history of psychosis or bipolar or you're on certain medications like SSRIs or you have a personal family history of seizures these are all risk factors so it's really good that we know about that but we're talking you know like i think 0.5% kind of thing like it's just really 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 low not yeah. n- not not there but yeah. just 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 really low and so i think and of course then those those uh edge cases and isolated sort of outliers get seized upon by a medical establishment that doesn't want this to happen or by the media who has been red pilled and then it becomes this giant thing and it reinforces the narrative and we go on and on but that's of course you know slowly thankfully shifting and i really hope that that i really hope this this movement continues you know i really hope that this just continues to unfold in an intelligent way having learned from the mistakes of the past perhaps yeah me too i had my first and maybe we'll talk about this on another podcast but i had my first multiple day kind of retreat experience last year um and on psilocybin mushrooms and it was just phenomenal but something i don't think we've touched on which we should in the next time next time we catch up (laughs) is just the importance of follow-up and integration and management and and stuff like that. hundred percent. Because it shouldn't, shouldn't just be a weekend thing and then your life's fixed. There's a lot more to go with it. And I don't, I just want to make sure that people listening don't get this like, oh, it's that easy kind of attitude towards it. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. I'm feeling another chat as well and I'm happy to come on and continue this. I could talk to you for the next two hours about this. I mean, as, <laughs> as you can tell, these, these things tend to light me up. These are very dear to my heart. But yeah, yeah, let's talk about that next time. But just to just to signpost that, it, it, I mean, you've it, it, it hit it there. Like the evidence is still emerging, but what looks like a good, based on what we've learned from psychedelic therapy, based on what psychedelically assisted therapy, based on what I was exploring in a startup, which I'm, I'm now no longer involved in, but uh, delivering psychedelic retreats for business leaders and designing mindfulness-based programs, some kind of preparation is really important. You want to know a little bit about what to expect. The, the, the number one rule is just go with it. Whatever's coming up is okay and it'll pass. And if you resist it, it'll persist. If you, what you resist persists. And in fact, it's going to get, if you're not wanting to experience something unpleasant, it's going to get more and more and more unpleasant as you become anxious about feeling unpleasant and then anxious about feeling anxious and spiraling. So good preparation I personally think mindfulness is like one of the best possible foundations because it's a systematic training in staying present with whatever's happening. Yeah. You know, and cultivating some compassion towards yourself along the way. I mean, how useful is that going to be if you bump into unpleasant experiences, which not everyone does? You know, we can have really blissful experiences, but sometimes it can be a bit challenging, especially at higher doses or. You know, if there's some stuff that needs to be resolved, you know, some unresolved trauma or some unresolved emotional stuff, like, yeah, so good preparation and spiritual teachers, even like Tara Brach, I heard recently talking to um, psychedelic leader Roland Griffiths, talking to him about uh, how, you know, her own use of psychedelics, which is quite recent, and how mindfulness and meditation is the foundation that she recommends for that. So one of the biggest thought leaders in the world in the meditation space talking about mindfulness meditation particularly and self-compassion practices being useful and then as you said as well it's very easy to go and do a weekend or week-long psychedelic retreat or a meditation retreat or a wellness retreat or any kind of deep process 
And we all know the experience of going to that. Let's just take a, a typical example that will resonate with all your listeners. Like you go to that wellness retreat, go to Bali, sit by the pool, drink a bunch of juices, do yoga in the morning, get massages, feel next level amazing, come home, hit the desk Monday morning, inbox, coffee, whatever, TV at night, glass of alcohol to switch off, you know, maybe after a few weeks, but gone. Three months later, it's like, did I even go? Same thing with a meditation retreat. Same thing potentially with a psychedelic retreat. The insights you get, you'll never lose them. But unless you have a way of integrating those insights into your life, what do they really mean? You might know deeply in your heart in one moment that you are like completely interconnected, inseparable, in fact, from like in every cell of your being, you might feel your inseparability from all other beings on the planet, from everything in existence. I mean, these are the peak experiences that people have. And that's a profound, I mean, it's a oneness with reality. It's a moment of satori or enlightenment. It's connection with God. You know, these are the ways people talk about it. It's a complete, and, and it's like profound. Yeah. But if you're not then integrating that, how's that going to stick in a society that lives almost from the opposite mindset of, you know, we're all just doing our thing, science is broken up into silos, people have broken up into tribes and silos within the tribes and we're disconnected from everyone and everything and we're scrolling, 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 scrolling and wondering why we're getting, you know, just more and more fucked up, right? <laughs> this, so, so, you know, if you don't integrate it. So, yeah, preparation, integration and a proper set and setting, there's your formula. How long that preparation, integration needs to be, don't know. I put together an eight-week course. That seems reasonable. Uh, psychedelic therapists will do two sessions before, two sessions after and maybe two sessions during the, the with the psychedelics so we don't know yet but something like that so let's talk about that next time i'd love to talk more about that with you if you like sounds amazing man i've loved this chat and i really feel like i'm going to get some messages about this podcast so <laughs> um which which is good it's good like i like that we can push the envelope and um and i know that you and i well you for much longer than myself but you and i are in this world where this is really normal stuff um you know sort of in our personal lives and you professionally but for many people, this will be the first time and they might be like, whoa, like, you know, this is really confronting or, you know, whatever it might be. So I like that we can we can do that for people. But um, if people are listening and just loving what you're saying, which obviously if they're still listening at this point, they are loving what you're saying, <laughs> um, where can they find you on the internet? Uh, if, they, if you Google my name, Dr. Richard Chambers, hit my website. That's probably the best protocol. That's got all my socials listed, contact details there, as well as my free downloadable meditations, a list to uh, uh, links to all of my popular media, media and academic articles, my books I've written. So there's a trove of, of free stuff there. So drrichardchambers.com would be a really good place to go. Awesome. I will put that link down in the show notes. So uh, scroll down there and click the link and get involved in Richard's world. I highly recommend it. It's a good place to hang out. Um, And so uh, for everybody listening, we want to leave them with something juicy. Um, What is one piece of health information that you wish more people knew about? Uh, Interesting question. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> Hopefully there's been plenty of juice in our conversation today. I certainly feel alive and by it. I'm hoping at least one or two of your audience members will as well. <laughs> so of your, much juice. Of, of your listeners. Um, oh, man, my approach to wellness is it needs to be integrated. I'm going to say, I'm going to use the word integrated that comes to mind. I am really interested in maintaining good 
psychosocial, you know, like physical health, psychological health, social health, and just doing a bit of everything every day. You know, I'm not like a massive like hours in the gym guy. I've got a pull up bar. Just got myself a 20 kilo weight vest because I'm just needed a bit bit of extra weight, but. I just do body weight workouts at home, work my cardio, work my flexibility, mobility. Um, and then I go dancing to connect with other people. I love like uh, conscious dance, like, you know, uh, ecstatic dance and particularly contact improv dancing, go out in nature, spend time connecting with nature. These are all ways of exercising and, and, and doing things like that. I love to just eat sort of intuitively, but well, my baseline I think is pretty good. Uh, you know, so just, just, just doing a little bit of exercise or something every day throughout the day, trying to integrate it through my life. And I think if people understood that, that it's not, we don't need to do really intense things like diets or massive lifestyle change or getting into the gym for hours at a time, you know, just a little bit every day. I do, I do a 20 to 30 minute workout a day, but I do it every day. And that I'm in great shape. I feel amazing in my body, you know. And I just, I just, it's a consistent thing that I've built up over decades, I guess. And I guess I have pushed it, you know. I've done the sort of the raw food thing way back around the time I was doing that meditate. So before the paleo and blah blah, blah movement, so I was, I, was, I was like fruitarian in 2001, you know, for a little while, just to see what that was like. And I guess when you go to the limit of something. And then realize that that's just an extreme outlying place to be. And then you come back <laughs> towards the middle. It's shifted the needle perhaps in a slightly healthier <laughs> direction, you know. Yeah. And, you know, so, yeah, so I guess maybe sometimes it is good to do those intense things and do those retreats and have those experiences or get into some kind of, you know, massive new wellness practice or try, you know, keto for a couple months or something like that. But then... I don't know. What what does a sustainable life look like? What does an integrated life look like? It's pretty hard to hang out with hardcore ketos or raw fooders, you know. It's, yes. <laughs> and, and, and and maybe there's something that's no, you know, no disrespect to building keto. I mean, I know people feel amazing and it's powerful and and whatever, but you know, if it's if eventually you realize, hey, this is actually meaning it's hard to hang out with people and I'm losing that social connection and maybe there's something in that social connection that's gonna offset the value of, you know. <laughs> eating a few carbs every now and then. So, <laughs> so I don't know. I guess that's, that's probably my two cents worth on that. Yeah, one tweak a week. Make small changes over time and be consistent. I like it. I think that's a fantastic approach. <laughs> and <laughs> for anybody listening, if you've enjoyed this episode, you want to share it with a friend, uh, please do so because we want to help make the world a healthier place one, one podcast share at a time. <laughs> so we'd appreciate that. And uh, thanks for being here. And thanks, Richard. I appreciate your time. And I'm, I can't wait for the next one. Me neither, man. I, I love chatting to you, man. So good. Sweet, dude. We'll catch you soon. Yeah. Bye. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use. And we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much and I'll see you on the next episode.
Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavor to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.